Welcome to this episode of How I Did It. My guest today is visiting Australia from the US. His name is Dave Smith. He founded and is currently president and CEO of the Heaton Smith Group. He's also served on the board of directors uh, at the Giving Institute and Giving USA Foundation. Dave's here in Australia talking to a number of large fundraising charities and nonprofits about how they can develop relationships with major donors and how they can secure support from those major donors. And uh, Dave's going to share how he does that and some of the principles behind building relationships uh, and gaining support from your major donor base or your prospective major donor base. I'm, I'm sure this will be of interest to anyone out there who is um, trying to cultivate relationships and um, maximize the relationship they can have with people and the support that they can get as a result. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hi Dave, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, I'm not surprised you've escaped Melbourne, so things are on the up. <laughs> uh, well, they let me out for a day. Yeah, they did, yeah. No, no, it's a great, it's a great city, you've got to say that, because otherwise I'll be in trouble. But um, uh, welcome to Sydney. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to your beautiful city, thank you. Yeah, great, great, Thanks great for place. hosting me. No, you're welcome. Um, I think you have the honour of being the second person to have read a report on giving that I authored uh, after my mother. Um, and that's how you found your way to me, and um, uh, that that almost coincided with this trip to Australia. So, why don't you kick off the conversation with just a little bit of information about um, what you what you're here for and what you're doing? Sure. So, Heaton Smith, which is my firm, we are retained by the nonprofit institution to help them facilitate and celebrate more planned and structured gifts. So they bring us on board to work with a very small number of their donors in a year's time. And these typically are donors who have consecutive year giving histories. They are major gift donors or they're moving from consistent annual gift um, uh, strategy to a more structured strategy. And then we walk them through our planning process, which is very process driven, out of which come very specific recommendations for their legacy plan. Terrific. Um, you on on the Heaton Smith um, website. You talk about understanding the complexities of legacy and gift planning. Yes. Uh, and obviously, you're working at the nexus um, of uh, the relationship between fundraising nonprofits and mm -hmm. the donors that support them. Correct. But um, just just for the sake of Australian ears, just tell us um, what you mean by legacy um, and gift planning. Sure. So let me define estate planning first, because yeah. I think the okay. distinction makes legacy planning clear, if you will. Yeah. So if, if people think about estate planning, typically it's pure disposition of my assets, right? So a default strategy in the US, and I would imagine a default strategy in Australia would be for a married couple at death, a first spouse, surviving spouse gets their assets, a death of surviving spouse for those with children or other heirs, then the heirs get that of tax, whatever the tax might be, they get uh, an inheritance. Yep. So that's really is disposition of assets. Legacy planning is certainly disposition of assets, but it's also looking at what other things are important to me that I want to pass not only to my family, but to institutions that are important to me. So if you will, it's the intersection of what I want to do for my family, what I want to do for my family, and how those overlap onto my assets. So very, very, it's a very thoughtful approach to 
that stage of your life and that and those elements uh, of your life and your financial situation. Um, are there any other key differences that distinguish estate planning and legacy planning as you define it? Well, I would say probably the overriding distinction if you think of the philanthropy is they spend a lot of time developing a strategy for their giving, not just through their estate plan, but during life. So one, if you look at families with wealth who do giving really well, is they tend to spend a lot of time educating generations about how to give money, mm. not just manage it and steward it, but how to give money. And mm. so one of, one of the questions on our questionnaire is, do you want your children involved in philanthropy? And so mm. if a donor says yes, and they haven't done that, then we talk to them about baby steps to engage their children in philanthropy. Emotionally, what happens when a child sees the family assets or family wealth used outside the walls of the family home or the mm. family homes is candidly they begin to build some emotional distance between them and uh, what they'll inherit. Uh, and so okay. that's why we say typically start small or start based on your children's financial maturity and age and capacity to you know think and make determinations about giving but that would be a clear distinction between estate planning and legacy planning. Very interesting study by UBS a few years ago. They found that those they interviewed, they found that one in five believed that their giving was effective. Right. One in five believed that they were actually making an impact mm -hmm. on the people who uh, were recipients mm -hmm. of the nonprofits they were giving to. Mm -hmm. That's not. That's not a good statistic. That is not a good statistic. And they right. were still active givers, presumably, right? These are not people Active givers just... because most people give out of habit, mm. right? And uh, spontaneous giving, emotional, habitual, whatever you want to call it. But what further in the study, UBS revealed that they gave these individuals some tools to add some strategies to their giving. Mm -hmm. And so the, effect, the, the rate went from one in five to 50%. Right. So once they had a strategy, it's very interesting, once yeah. they had a strategy on how to give and they zeroed in on what they wanted to affect mm. and they, I think, would imagine they had, they had experienced some positive outcomes, then they were much more uh, pleased with their overall giving. Yeah, fascinating. Now what you're describing inter alia is um, a sophisticated um, stage-based um, progression of a donor that helps the institution, but yes. it also helps the donor Very and their so. family, right? Yes. But then just to flip that around, um, I'm thinking of real life experiences here. A lot of times organizations that are seeking funds want to cut through all of that, is my observation. Even if they've had the conversations, everyone's nodded around the table about how we need to do this properly in mm -hmm. a sophisticated strategic way. Mm -hmm. Um, and they actually then say, oh, let's just get an event. Let's just try and get as many people in the room. Okay, let's, what we need to do is, is cut all that other stuff and let's just go and ask them for money. What, what, what would you say to those people if you could sit there and, and maybe give them a little bit of advice? Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do it right, you're likely to get a larger gift. Now this... So then they might say, sorry to interrupt, but then they might say, well, okay, that... So you say, but you know, prove it or, or 
how do you convince them? What's the what's the rationale that sits behind your belief? Well, years of experience yep. for one. Uh, two, we know how donors think, right? And I'm. I should say, I guess I'm not surprised. I started to say I'm surprised at how many donors I sit in front of who will say something like, well, I know this organization just wants my money. Because mm. we're there to talk about legacy gifts and the expectation they think is that they have to absolutely include our climb in their estate plan, yeah. right? Years ago, I'm in Southern California and working with a, a hospital foundation was asked to meet with this couple at their house and drove up, knocked on the door. Woman comes to the door, who are you? I told her, of course, and she said, well, I know why you're here. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> she walked around and she, with her left hand, kind of waved me <laughs> into their foyer. So I was uh, a little taken aback mm -hmm. and I thought, this is not gonna be an easy, mm -hmm first meeting. Mm. So we went into the living room and her husband was there and we chit-chatted and what I didn't do is I didn't ask them for a gift. I didn't ask them their net worth. I didn't ask them about their current estate plan. I began to develop a relationship with them to learn about their family, to learn about their daughter, learn a lot about his work history. Mm. He was one of the uh, engineers who worked on the atomic bomb, went to Columbia University, one of the lead engineers for one of the space shuttles in the U.S. space program. Brilliant guy. His $10 watch would stop working. He would take it apart and fix it. Mm. I mean, he was very eccentric in many ways, but really an incredibly brilliant man. Mm. That led to, that conversation led to about a million for, one million four hundred thousand dollars in charitable gift annuities for that foundation. Mm. Mm. So that's an example of she felt like they'd been treated, you just want my money. We changed the conversation to what's important to you, what makes you tick, mm. what goals do you have? Do you want to join those with opportunities at this foundation? And they did. If you want to change your results, the conversation needs to be what are your goals as a donor for you and your, for your income needs? for your estate and for your heirs, and is philanthropy part of that, right? And different conversation, different way in, so it's what's important to you, and then if possible, let us design an opportunity or a gift to represent what your goals and objectives are around yeah. your family legacy and philanthropic. In the States, one advantage that I think we have that you don't have here, at least not yet, are these trusts where you can integrate family wealth transfer and gifts to charity. Mm -hmm. So, And just say so what you call them. Charitable lead trusts, specifically I'm talking about a charitable lead trust, yep. where a donor can make a current gift to a, a charitable trust, it pays income to charity for a term mm -hmm. of years, and at the end, well, in this case, at the end of the term, those assets will be gifted either directly to the heirs or to a trust for heirs' benefit. Yep. So you're setting the assets aside for a period of time for philanthropic purposes, 
but ultimately they're staying yeah. within the family. So the, the, you're giving the income stream, and it's hard to the yes. income stream to the charity, and then the capital reverts back to the family. So exactly. you've got that security that the family will be looked after at the inheritance. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it's an estate planning, it's an estate planning, in my opinion, vehicle first, mm -hmm. a philanthropic vehicle second. Yeah, but it's a creative way to, yes. to, to, to do it. And um, we've, we've talked about things like charitable remainder trusts here, but we haven't, haven't actually got there yet. So hopefully uh, one day we'll have those, um, those uh, and donors will have those things in their, right. in their, their kit bag. Um, so just a couple of other things, Dave. So um, other do's and don'ts that you think are relevant in terms of um, major fundraising planned giving, for, particularly from the perspective of the fundraiser. So when you look, when you've seen clients that do it well, um, what have you what have you seen them do well, and and what are the things that uh, you've seen organisations do not so well? Oh, the ones that do things really well. What, some of the obvious things, and I'll get to more meaningful things. Obvious things is they have this long term structure around a major in plan giving program where they have specific protocols. They have smaller than larger portfolios. Uh, ideal portfolio size is about 75 donors, so they can really get to know those folks. Mm -hmm. uh, they have the capacity to really build uh, deeper relationships with, with those individuals, whether it's a couple or a family. And I would say <coughs> if they're a major principal gift uh, donor, mm -hmm. then uh, to the extent they can to get to know their children, right? So that's their, that's their gift. I yep. met with a prospect several years ago, and I won't name the city because I don't want to offend anyone, but he was building his major gift staff, and he mm. said, "Look, major gift, major gift, major giving, major gift fundraising is not complicated. It's not rocket science, mm. right?" He looked around the city, large international city, and said, "There's really no one I want to hire," and yep. so he went and hired a tile salesman, a woman who was a regional head of a regional sales for a cosmetic company. And I can't remember the third, there were three. Mm. And he trained them, he educated them, and they did incredibly well, <laughs> right? But they, they, one, they had capacity to learn, mm. but also they had capacity to build these really significant relationships. Mm. So that's, that's one, you have this internal structure, takes a while, and sometimes it, it takes decades for- And that's interesting because we, we haven't had decades of this as part of our fundraising industry, let's call it. Yes. Um, we don't have a, a you know a huge army of people that that um, have done this and got a track record. I mean, there'll be there you know there'll be people listening and saying, no, no, that's not true. There's a large number of people out there, but I don't think the pool's that large that organisations can scan around and, and um, see a, a significant number of people who've been doing it for a long time. So looking yes. outside the box, yes, um, hiring for at attitude, hiring yes. for those generic skills like the ability to you know build rapport and build a relationship that, that right. that's probably really interesting to a lot of organizations yes. here who might think you know the pool of candidates isn't as big as they'd like it to be yeah and I would say at the top of the list would be listening skills mm -hmm. I mean from a plain giving perspective mm -hmm. you can be you can have all the technical knowledge in the world mm -hmm. but if you're walking in the room and acting like you're the smartest person in the room and telling them everything you know you're going to learn one thing about that donor, right? And you have no idea what their needs are. Mm. And uh, so I, listening skills are incredibly important mm. to what we do, but I would argue they're equally important for a major gift donor. Yeah, terrific. So yeah, w uh, things to avoid on the flip side of um, um, doing things well. 
what do you see that um, tends to, to um, uh, you know, get a suboptimal outcome, let's say? Uh, I may get rocks thrown at me for saying this, but I think the biggest thing to avoid is looking at donors like an ATM. Yep. It's, I have a goal. I mean, trust me, I've heard this from people I respect, but they have goals and they need to meet them and they mm -hmm. report to their board and uh, there is this tendency, and again, I don't fault anyone for that, mm -hmm. of looking and, and, you know, treating some donors like they're an ATM. And that's why we'll hear in the States a lot of donors say, I'm a little tired. Yeah. And to be fair, you'll hear development staff say, look, we've relied on, you know, this group of donors for the last 20 years. We have to expand that. Yep. I don't know. I mean, higher education in the U.S. is the most sophisticated. They have the most sophisticated, you know, fundraising apparatuses as a, as a, as a, as a segment of the nonprofit community, yep. right? And, but healthcare is much, much newer to this. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions. I mean, you know, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Duke, other, other mm -hmm. medicine, et cetera. But a lot of healthcare institutions would say we're kind of similar to a lot of healthcare institutions in Australia, mm. is that we, we are just moving from event fundraising into securing consistent annual gifts, into facilitating major and principal gifts, ultimately into facilitating plan gifts. So they're, they're you know, 20 to 25 years in, like yeah. Australia. Yeah. The idea of um, being an ATM is interesting because I haven't heard, I get the concept of the donor feeling like uh, an ATM, but the, the, the time someone said they felt like an ATM to me in this area was actually the, the fundraiser, right, the development officer. And their comment was more around what the board expected of them. And mm -hmm. that's how they felt that the board just said, well, we'll go get some cash and, you know, uh, and deliver it to mm -hmm. us. Um, so what we haven't really spoken about, because we've spoken a lot about the, you know, the person who's on the front line, we haven't spoken a lot about the board, the mm -hmm. role of the board, mm -hmm. and how, particularly with major donors and really important relationships, um, the board can play and should, in my view, play a, a very important support role. How do you how how do you think that works? What's the best practice um, in a very general sense in that area? The boards operate very differently based on the maturity of the organization. So. You know, a, a, a board of trustees at a higher education organization um, very differently from a community foundation sure. board. Yeah. The community foundation board is going to have a lot more say mm -hmm. over uh, the, some of these issues uh, which we've discussed, yeah. whereas a board at, uh, at a higher education institution, they're, they're looking at other things that they would uh, deem uh, uh, not less important, but more in their purview of oversight, uh -huh. Uh -huh. yes. But, but as a general um, statement, uh, would you say it's important for uh, the people who are governing the organization, let's say, because the role of boards is different in the US charitable context of it is here, so let's just say the people who are governing and leading the organization uh, and overseeing the budget for the organization, would you say in a general sense it's important for them to play a role in the fundraising effort and the relationships that go with that? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You want them to give, you want them to help you, they, you want them to make introductions. Uh, you know, if they're a healthcare organization and it's, it's even a children's hospital can be an adult acute hospital, but you have different service lines and you want them involved in whatever service line is, you know, 
they're most passionate about and making introductions of you know potential donors absolutely mm. well I think we're we're moving in that direction but um, there still be a lot of people on fundraising uh, charity boards here who um, who weren't recruited to the board with that understanding and might feel that mm -hmm. the, you know that expectation moves the goalposts on them so it's um, it's a, it's that point where we're just turning our minds to that kind of approach I think uh, um, I would say is a very general observation but for me it's so important because it's a team sport yes. and you need um, a lot of donors I, I observe here in Australia want to deal with um, say the chair or mm -hmm. a member of the board mm -hmm. want to have that engagement they may expect to have that level of seniority um, and oh, I wonder it'd be interesting to see whether you you find the same thing as you spend more time here but uh, well, and even in the U.S., you know, we have we work with clients, and specific donors have been incredibly generous, and you know, made very very large gifts, and and with that usually comes some access to the CEO, to the mm -hmm. board chair, to, yeah. I mean, that's so even at a board level, you have to have uh, board members who are willing to engage with some of their you know high profile or high net worth donors, and because the expectation is there for the donor. Yeah, but again, it fits with the idea of the relationship, right? It's a yes. relationship, and if I want um, lots of support and money from you, but I actually won't give you any of my time, right. and I'll delegate that to the person who's asking you for money, who might be the development officer or the head of fundraising, what message does that send? It's an interesting one, isn't it? So relationships, out of this conversation for me comes the idea that relationships are absolutely critical, and there's, a, uh, there's an awful lot of effort um, and sophistication that needs to go into building and stewarding and, um, and, and just looking after those relationships over an extended period of time. Right? Yes. And that's, that's your yes. work, that's your life, isn't it? Really? Exactly, it is. And the, 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 the data on this in the US is very, very hard. It's a little hard here as well, but the average playing gift is somewhere between 50 and 75,000, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Um, higher, the, the average, Playing gift for higher education is larger than, say, yeah. healthcare. Yeah. But let's say let's say it's seventy-five. Our average documented estate and structured gift is five hundred and fifteen thousand. Right. So you know we're eight to ten times the average. Mm. And kind of back to your question about, I'm concerned as a chief development officer, as an executive director, and my board chair is concerned about current dollars. I would point them to look at the outcomes of having changed so many of those conversations yeah. over the last 10 years. And having an average gift that's eight to 10 times higher mm -hmm. in the US. And now that does encompass everything from bequests to charitable mm -hmm. trust to yep. donor advice funds, gift from, from DAFs, et cetera. But still, it speaks to the beauty of addressing and interfacing with the donor in a very different way. And the power of the conversation. Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Well, good luck with your conversations. Thank you very much for this one. And uh, Thank enjoy you. the rest of your time in Australia. Thank Thanks, Dave. You've been a perfect host. Thank <laughs> you. Perfect guest. Thank you. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.